0: Thank you, Pastor Jono. Um, if you could please stand up while I read God's word, and uh, Pastor Brody will make his way up. We're going through Romans 11, verses 1 to 10 this morning. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Please be seated. The word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Richard. Good morning, everyone. And uh, a special welcome to those who are joining us online. There are still a couple of seats around here, and we'd love to see your face, but glad that you're joining us as well. Last week, uh, I was downstairs. I'm the senior high youth pastor, so I'm usually downstairs getting to teach students, high schoolers. Today, I have the privilege and honor of being with you. Uh, But last week, we were talking about fear. And I told a story about how when I was younger, I was afraid of clowns. Can I see all of my people who are afraid of clowns, please, so I know I'm not the only one? Fantastic. Some of us are still afraid of clowns. Okay. Uh, Total aside and not in my manuscript, I was afraid of clowns and my parents thought it would be fun to have a clown come to my sixth birthday party. He turned out to be an okay guy. Um, But I asked the question, I said, what are you guys afraid of? And I was expecting, you know, the normal things, spiders and the dark and heights uh, and monsters under the bed, although my students are a little bit too old for that fear anymore. But one of my students put her hand up, and I called on her first. I said, what are you afraid of? And she said, rejection by my friends. And I thought, okay. That's the kind of morning that we're going to be having today. We're going to start in the deep end together. That's fine. That's okay. But why do we fear rejection? Why do we fear rejection? I have friends applying for jobs, and they're hoping to be picked from a large pool of candidates. Students are applying for schools and just waiting anxiously for that acceptance letter. Kids in gym class wait to be selected from a lineup for the dodgeball team. People wait for their visas. People wait for home mortgages. And singles step out and they try to ask that person out. We hope for the best, but we all experience rejection. It hurts when we are rejected. We can think questions like, what did I do? Or, what didn't I do? Or, how could I have prevented this? Or, is something wrong with me? These questions might come to mind. Rejection cuts us to our core. Sometimes it's easy to get back up, to dust ourselves off, to keep moving, and sometimes rejection leaves us crushed for a long time. I've been turned down more than I want to remember. I've missed scholarships. I've experienced breakups, both as the one being broken up with, and the one doing the breaking. So I've been rejected, and I've been the rejector. I've been on both sides, and I'm sure you find yourself somewhere in the middle too. But each of these experiences have carried their own burdens, some of them keeping me up for months on end as I try to process and think through. Why did that have to happen? What's going on? And that brings us to our relationship with God. What about God? Are we secure in our relationship with God? Do we believe that He is for us? Or do we think that there might be a chance, no matter how big or small, that God might reject us? If we don't perform right or say just the right things, if we sin just one too many times, if we don't understand completely what God wants us to do, if we step off the path that He has laid before us. Maybe you're here today and you think God is done with you, or maybe you're here today and you've never met God, but you don't really think that he wants anything to do with you. And maybe you find yourself somewhere in the middle. But God has given his word to us so that we may know what is true, and the Apostle Paul has some important truths for us today. In Romans 9 and 10, Paul concludes that God gets to save whoever he wants, He argues that God is not unjust in his salvation, and he argues that man is not undeserving in the judgment we receive from God that God passes due to sin. Yet Paul wants to make the message clear. Salvation by grace through faith is for all people, starting with the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, starting with God's chosen people and flowing out to those who are far off. But there's a problem. Israel was not experiencing the salvation that God promised for them. What gives? Has God given up? Is God stuck? Is God simply done with his first chosen people, and now he's moved on to the Gentiles? Paul's question, has God rejected his people, is really the conclusion to the argument and the transition to a hope for Israel. For two chapters, Paul languishes over the unrepentant and stubborn hearts of his people, the Israelites. He longed for their salvation, but he recognized that both they and God had roles to play in the work of salvation. And while God was faithfully doing his part of providing and caring and giving opportunity and pursuing and forgiving and drawing the Israelites back, The Israelites failed to come. They had no regard for God. Look again at verse 21 of chapter 10, just before today's text. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God did not by any means withdraw from Israel. He had, for all of Israel's history, extended grace. Had there been periods of destruction? Yes. Had there been points of farther awayness from God? Yes. But had God given up on his people at any point? Paul's answer is emphatic. By no means. God has not rejected his people. God is always faithful to his people. In verse 3 Paul uses a couple of examples to provide or sorry to prove that God was faithful to his people and had not rejected them. First and foremost, Paul reminds the Romans that he himself is a Jew, able to trace his line back to Abraham himself. Philippians 3 uh, tells us a few more of Paul's credentials, longer than this, and it says that uh, he called himself of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was, by all accounts, blameless and fully devoted in Judaism. Judaism. But we can pause here and think about ourselves. How do we allow our own histories and our own heritage to define who we are? Refugees and immigrants bring rich culture with them to new lands. Home life and public life collide. Questions are asked. Will our kids speak our native tongue at home? Or will they speak the language of the culture around them? Do we dig our heels in and maintain a strong separation of our culture and the culture around us, or do we assimilate? And if we do, how far do we go? My grandparents were immigrants, a couple of hardworking Mennonites, and they brought with them a distinct Germanic culture. My parents and aunts and uncles, for the most part, were born here in Canada, and so they learned their culture from their parents, and then my generation of the family learned our culture from our parents. It was passed down to us. Although we've adapted to Canada, we can trace our line back, and we take some pride in our ancestral people and the culture they represent. But how does that fit into God's bigger picture of what He is accomplishing through salvation? The Scriptures say, after all, that He is making a new people for Himself, He's bringing together many people from many nations and tribes and languages. So how do our cultures fit into the culture of the kingdom of God? What is God doing? Well, Paul here identifies his lineage, that he was a true Israelite. And through his story, throughout the book of Acts and as we hear through his letters... We see that he fought against the way, persecuting Christians and approving of their murders because of his zeal for God. He thought he was doing what was right. If God was done with the Israelites, this one named Paul should be the first to go. But that's not the case. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. He came for Paul even when Paul was set against Jesus. Even when Paul was out to destroy anything that had a hint of Jesus. Paul went looking for Jesus in malice. Jesus went looking for Paul in mercy. And so Paul, a true Israelite, was brought into the family of God. He was brought into the mercy of God. He was sheltered under the grace of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul experienced salvation and forgiveness and cleansing and freedom. He was lifted out of death and into new life. He was brought into the fullness of Jesus. So maybe Paul's, or maybe God's not done with Paul. But is God done with Israel? It's a fair question. And Paul again, his answer remains the same: By no means. In verse 2, Paul highlights that it would be against God's very nature to reject his people. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. A few weeks ago, Pastor Vin took us through the doctrine of election, and if you missed that sermon, you can catch it online at willingdon.org or on our YouTube channel. If you've missed any of the sermons in this series you want to catch up, you can check those out. Uh, but the doctrine of election is related to this word for new. Paul has argued that God chooses specific people to save and that God has chosen Israel to be his people. There are two levels of choosing here the personal and the corporate. And both are in view for Paul as he writes chapter 11. Today's passage deals primarily with Israel. The next uh, part of the series. We'll deal more with our own salvation, but there is hope for us as well. But let's look at Israel. Let's focus on Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is called God's chosen people, his precious treasure, his holy nation. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And Psalm 135 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. This speaks of God's covenant relationship with Israel, that Israel is still God's chosen people. This doesn't negate the value of the church today, but it also doesn't cast the Israelites aside. Paul recognizes there is still work to be accomplished in them which we will get to as we move through this sermon series. Paul illustrates this point, though, by taking a snippet of the life of Elijah. So let me open that up a little bit for us to recall. Elijah is a prophet of God in the Old Testament, serving during the times of the kings. His career as a prophet had him ministering while a man named Ahab was king alongside his wife Jezebel. And if you know anything about these two, you'll know that they were bad people. They did what was evil in God's eyes, raising up prophets of other gods and building areas of worship to these demonic powers. But God worked powerfully through Elijah, at one time using Elijah to kill off 450 prophets of false gods. As you can imagine, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were not fans of Elijah, he stood against them and their plans. Ahab calls Elijah the troubler of Israel, although Elijah immediately turns that around and says Ahab is the one troubling Israel because Ahab has rejected God and has disobeyed his commands. So they had a bit of a rocky relationship. But here's how 1 Kings 19 starts. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods Do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. So in case the language was a little bit challenging to to follow, Ahab tells Jezebel, look what he did to our prophets. Jezebel sends a message to Elijah and says, hey, you know how you killed all our prophets? By tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. And if I haven't, then may the gods kill me instead. But this is how sure I am that you're going to die. Good luck. Love Jezebel. (laughs) And Elijah, he's like, I'm out of here. And he runs off and he drops off one of his guys at a city after a day's journey. And then he runs, uh, he keeps going, he takes a couple of naps. He eats some food delivered by angels, and that gives him energy to run for 40 days until he gets into the wilderness, to the mountain of God, where God gave Moses the law. And there, God met with Elijah. In despair, Elijah believed he was the only faithful follower of God left in Israel. This is what he says in verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. He thinks he's the only one. But God meets with Elijah and tells him that's not the case. This is what Paul picks up on in verse 4 of today's passage. What is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah thought he was alone. He thought Israel was lost. He thought that if the queen killed him, no one would be left to declare the goodness of God. To declare the kindness of God. The wrath of God. The judgment of of God. No one would deliver God's messages to his chosen people. And if that were the case, then his people couldn't be delivered from their sin. But God said, that's not the case. There's more to this story. There was a remnant still faithful to God, and there was a plan. Elijah didn't have to go back on blind faith. The story continues in the following verses, saying that God gave him specific people to go to to initiate the next steps of the plan to redeem Israel. And as I was reading Elijah's story, I was reminded uh, I was at an event a couple of weeks back, a prayer night with a bunch of different youth groups across Burnaby. And I was talking with one of the youth leaders afterwards, and she was saying that uh, she, she works part time in a school, and she's part time youth director. And she was saying how she felt like she was the only Christian at her school. She didn't know what she was supposed to do. She didn't know how she was supposed to live as a light because she felt alone. And there was a student who was also at this prayer night who thought he was the only Christian at his school. He didn't know how to live as a light in a dark place. He thought he was alone. Turns out they went to the same school, one as a teacher, one as a student, and they met that night at the prayer night. And now they realized, oh... I'm not alone. There are people out there that I get to do this journey with. There are people that I know are in my places that go with me. I'm not alone. We might think that we are alone on our journey. You're the only student in your class who follows God, you're the only worker on your floor who knows Jesus. You're the only family member who loves your Lord. Now, that might be the case, but there could be more. We might anguish with Elijah and think it better for us to run away, to escape. Elijah thought that he was at death's door. He thought this was the end for him. But God had more people than Elijah knew. God has more people around us than we know. I think about the underground church across the world and the stories of Christians meeting each other by chance, maybe using code to communicate, and when they realize they're in the presence of another Christian, the joy that they experience because they realize that they are not alone. God continues to preserve his people. So Paul's reference to Elijah's story today shows that God is always, he has always been faithful to Israel. He cares for his precious treasure. He wants Israel to experience freedom and salvation. And then we get to verse 5, which effectively Paul is saying, if God has preserved his people in the past, which we see through this story of Elijah, and if God has preserved me, one of his people, then surely God is at the present time still preserving his people. Even if only a remnant remains, yet still a remnant does remain. The problem, Paul argues, is not with God. God is always faithful to his people. The problem is that his people are not always faithful to him. God's people are often unfaithful to him. And so a question that comes up when we put these two Truths together, that God is always faithful to his people, but his people are not always faithful to him. The question we ask is how? Maybe that's a question that lingers deep in your mind, in your heart, deeper than you want to admit. Despite all the rejection and disobedience and stubbornness and failings, how could God be uh, faithful to a faithless people? Humanly speaking, it sounds impossible, right? I'd give up on a friend if they let me down more than a few times. I'd stop trusting a friend if they proved themselves unworthy of my trust. I'd steer clear and not expect anything of them. That's my humanness, and I am pretty confident I'm not the only one with those feelings in the room. But God is not like us. God, the Scriptures say, is holy 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 set apart so far above and beyond our comprehension and our ways god is capable of more than we could possibly be and that's what made it possible for a remnant of israel to remain throughout the whole course of israel's history it was god's capabilities that preserved them not anything israel did not anything any one Israelite did, although there was coming a day when a descendant of Israel would save his people, but we'll get there in a second. It was God through and through. And this is why Paul emphasizes that the remnant in verse uh, f- 5 and 6 was chosen by grace. That's a hard word for us. Grace. Nothing could have been done by any person to convince God to preserve them. We all bear the mark of sin, and we all deserve death as just payment for our evil work. And the Israelites are no different. Before we totally move off from Elijah, it turns out Elijah actually had the same problem that Ahab had. They were both sinners. They were both desperately in need of God. Neither of them could do what it took to bring their own salvation. Yet God, in His intense grace, lavished Himself on His people. There was no work that could earn God's favor or His forgiveness, He offered it selflessly and at his own expense. How so? Well, he was patient with his people. He endured their rebellion. He sent his prophets to speak and call his people back to himself, even as his people killed his prophets. He mourned their wicked hearts, even when he allowed them to suffer exile. And the conquering of foreign nations, his name was still being besmirched. When his people thought he had forgotten them and they chased after other gods, he chased after them. He was cheated on, he was betrayed, he was rejected. God was the one who was forgotten. And yet he still pursued. Yet he still showed grace. And still he shows us grace today. He is still faithful to his people. And so Paul carries on. In verse 7, Paul admits that the Israelites, they were seeking God, but they sought to be made right with God on their own terms and in their own way. In doing so, they failed to find God. Some did, right? Paul says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The rest of Israel failed to find God. God. Pastor Mark and Pastor Ray covered this heart posture in depth over the last couple of weeks, but Israel continued in their own blind efforts to clamor up to God to prove their worthiness to Him, but no one is worthy of God because of our sin. Israel could not understand how to receive the righteousness God offers only through grace because they were too preoccupied trying to earn it and that's why God gave them over to their own ways. Their pursuit of righteousness actually pushed them farther from God. Their pursuit of righteousness actually pushed them farther from righteousness. Their efforts to earn God's favor ended up taking them a long way from His grace, which is the only place where we can find favor. Their eyes were shut. Their ears were shut. Their efforts became trappings and trippings, and they could not effort their way back. It's like a disoriented diver who's swimming the wrong way, going down instead of up toward the surface and toward freedom. Like a skier caught in an avalanche, digging deeper into the snow, disoriented, and not heading to the surface. Israel's efforts sunk them deeper and deeper into sin and loss and rejection of God. They thought they were doing right, they thought they were able to make it, but they were wrong. And I wonder if we find ourselves there today, thinking we are doing right, thinking that we can somehow manage to make it. But we'd be wrong. Here's something to note as well throughout today's passage. Paul quotes from a couple of places throughout the Old Testament. He quotes uh, from Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, a psalm, and Isaiah. He quotes from the law, the historical books, the wisdom and writings, and the prophets. He pulls from every part of the Jewish Scriptures, And there's a cumulative and total condemnation being represented here of Israel's efforts to earn their way to God. Their whole history and their very core, their identity as God's people, bound up in their understanding of God as He has revealed Himself through His Word, written and proclaimed by His chosen people, the prophets, the priests, the kings, all of it proves their inability to reach God on their own. And all of it proves our inability to reach God on our own. No amount of giving or serving or obligation, as Pastor Richard called it, will put you in good standing with God. No number of Sundays attended or charities volunteered at or cookies baked will get you any closer to him. There's no magic jar of beans you can fill with all your good efforts that you can shake in his face for him to smile at you, pat you on the head, and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. God does reward faithful living, but maybe not in the way we expect, and we're going to get there in a minute. The base truth is that we are like Israel. We are so often unfaithful to God. And at our core, we aren't just so often unfaithful to God, we are unfaithful to God. We reject Him, we turn away, we run our own way, we don't want Him. That's our default setting. That's our sin. That is sin in us. So what hope is there for us? the same hope that the Israelites had. It's the same hope they still have today, that we have been, are being, and will be pursued by a faithful God. Chapter 11 of Romans is the start of something fresh. Paul has lamented Israel's hard heart, but it's not always going to be that way. God has not given up on his people. He does not give up on his people. God could have destroyed his people in the wilderness and started over with Moses, but he chose not to. God could have left his people to their own destruction under the judges and the rot of kings like Ahab, but he chose to step in and save. God could have closed his own ears, his own eyes to the plight and the broken hearts of his people as they poured out songs of longing and cries of despair. And although we see that in God's judgment through the Scriptures, we also see that He binds up the brokenhearted, and He draws near to the weak in spirit. God could have left His people in exile, never to return after they ignored Him, after they ignored His prophets, after they killed His messengers. But He called them back and delivered them to their land again. He restored them to Himself God is in the business of restoration. God is in the business of reconciliation, and he is not done with Israel yet. Paul's going to get to Israel's future in the rest of the chapter, but in the meantime, we can pause and we can consider what this means to us. Because most of us, if not all of us, probably don't have Jewish Ancestry. We maybe don't come from a Jewish line. If you do, welcome here. Glad you're here. But the majority of us probably don't. It would be easy for us to put off Israel's place in history as uh, and, and the redemptive work that He is doing for them. After all, God is working through the church now, right? And it's true. The church does receive the distinction as God's people. We share in the blessing that Israel has missed. In 1 Peter 2, the Apostle Peter writes, "...but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." So how is it that we, a people far off from God, living in darkness, would be brought into the light and brought closer to God? How? And again, the answer, it's all by grace. It is grace upon grace. And to whom do we look to receive this grace? To whom do we look to be brought out of darkness? Well, the answer is we look to the light of the world, as the Scriptures call him, the one who brought grace and truth to an otherwise dark and twisted people. We look to Jesus, the faithful one of God. Jesus, the Messiah, the deliverer of his people. Jesus, the promised hope of Israel, born as a Jew, born under the law, and yet Jesus the saving one. Jesus, the fulfillment of Israel's failings, the successor in Israel's stead, the redeemer of Israel's rebellion, and ours, and ours. Jesus, the fulfillment of our failings. The successor in our stead. The redeemer of our rebellion. Faith in Jesus redeems us. Because Jesus is the faithful one. And Jesus, being in very nature God, is always faithful to his people. Jesus is the one who lifts us up out of despair and hardness of heart and rejection. He was rejected by his people he was crucified so that we could receive by, uh, be received by the father and called children of god jesus was raised to life so that we could experience the fullness of life we were created for when we put our faith in him when we trust that his death covers our sins then we are covered with his righteousness the righteousness we need, the righteousness that all of our souls crave, righteousness that comes only through grace. Jesus is faithful in our place. And when we trust Him to save us, we are credited His faithfulness. We are given His faithfulness. When we are found in the love of God and the family of God, when we have received that position in Jesus, then our heart posture is made new and we get to live like God. Looking again at 1 Peter, the apostle urges the people of God to live differently because of the new life that we have in Jesus. He says, Beloved, beloved, you are so loved by God. Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here we understand what it means to live like Christ. It is because He lives in us that we are able to live like Him. It's because of salvation that we can accomplish good works. It is because of Jesus that there will come a day when God will in fact look on us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Yet not because we have somehow saved ourselves by our works. Instead, it is because we belong to Jesus that we live honorable and good lives, lives of freedom from sin and glory to Him. Peter goes on to say, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Through Jesus, we can live lives of faithfulness to God. We join in the remnant of God's people, and God is faithful to His people. Though it is just a remnant, we are not alone. We may feel isolated, but we are united, not only to Christ, but also to one another through the Holy Spirit. We might think we're too far gone for God, but God sent His Son to save us while we were still enemies of God. You think He's going to change His mind now that He's called you a child of God? Not going to happen. God has not rejected His people. God is always faithful. And for the rest of chapter 11, Paul details... How Israel's faithlessness allows the Gentiles to enter into this promise. It is because Israel rejected their Savior that the world is able to receive him. It's an incredible twist of irony that the people of God would reject their God, and God would then go to a godless people and make them his own. And Paul's going to show us that God still has a future for Israel. Despite Israel's faithlessness, God remains faithful. Despite our faithlessness, God remains faithful. By putting our faith in Jesus, he has begun a good work of redemption in us. He has opened our eyes. He has opened our ears. He's taken away, and this is in reference to verse 8, he's taken away our spirit of stupor and given us instead His Holy Spirit to lead, to convict, to redeem, to restore. As we learn to follow Him and obey Him now out of love for Him, we reveal that we are also, with Paul, true descendants of Abraham, children of God's promise. God is not done with Israel. God is not done with us. If anything, God has only just begun. So today you might find yourself thinking that God should reject you. You might find yourself feeling like you've rejected God that one too many times. I was talking with someone after the last service. They said, you know, I'm afraid that I've rejected Jesus three times like Peter did. But then they also said, but I remember how the story goes, that Jesus also redeemed Peter three times and called him back to himself. So wherever you find yourself today, if, you, if you're here and you've never given God a thought, or if you're here and you want to give your life To Jesus, if you want to be safe in him, he's not a safe God, but we can be sure that he is saving and will save us, there's assurance in that. So we're going to spend some time praying, uh, reflecting. I've got a few questions for us to think on, and then we're going to have a time in uh, song. And I would just encourage you, if you want to receive Christ today, if you want to step into life today, if you want to join in the family today, be his people. Enter the promise. We'll have people up here who are able to pray with you. Uh, We also have prayer cards. They're the green ones in the seat back in front of you. You could take this moment to write down a prayer on the back. We'd love to receive these so we can pray with you and for you through the week. Or if you want to rededicate your life to Him, submit again. Or if you want to simply celebrate and thank God again for what He's doing, that's what this time will be four. But let's respond to God his faithfulness and invite him to make us a faithful people. Let's do that now.